like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Hey, what's up? And welcome to Let's Red Table That. I'm Tracy T. Rowe. And I'm Cara Presley. How are you feeling today, Tracy? You know how I'm feeling, Cara. I'm feeling every day amazing, and I know you're feeling successful. Of course. I had a feeling you might be feeling every day amazing. Just a thought. But yeah, yeah, I'm definitely feeling successful. Glad to be back today. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Today's episode? Okay. Mm-hmm. Listen. Heavy. Heavy. It's heavy. We have great guests, though. We so do. Oh, my gosh. Our guests are deep. amazing. They're yeah. doing some phenomenal work. Yeah. But when I say heavy and deep, okay, mm-hmm. heavy and deep was this episode. So how did you feel about the episode before we even talked to the guests? Oh, my gosh. So much to unpack. For me, Kara, it was really about fear, trauma, and pain. I think mm-hmm. all three of those things drive hate. Because we don't know how to process pain, fear, and trauma, mm-hmm. it's easier, I think, for us to to shift it into hate. Right. Just let it kind of uh, simmer, if you will. I feel like their limiting beliefs are what hinder us. People just know what they know and how they grew up. They don't want to hear any other perspective or even want to consider the impacts on others. So I think that's the biggest part of it. We definitely saw it in this episode. I'm glad that They got to get someone who was reformed to come to the table. I can't say that type of person would always be welcome at the table, right? You know what? I would like to allow myself the luxury of believing that I have evolved enough 
despite the fact that I gave full side eye and hell to the no faces during the episode. You are GAM 2.0. For real. Go ahead and let y'all know that now. <laughs> Tracy's face is straight GAM this whole episode. Let me say this. It's difficult and as heavy and deep as this episode was, it was mm-hmm. also relevant and necessary. We need to talk more about this, especially now that there is so much happening in our country and there's so much going on with regard to race relations, mm-hmm. education, awareness. Mm-hmm. We need to have these kind of conversations with groups of people that we can trust and groups yes. of people that we can learn from and then we can unlearn with. Hello? Yeah, that's a key one. I like that. You've gotten to hear how we feel, but now, don't you think it's time to hear what your Red Table Talk community has to say, Tracy? Yes, I do. We asked our community, how do you keep your personal biases in check? And here are some of your answers. Kara, start us off with our good old Memphis sister friends, friend. Jen Chom says, I simply tell myself there are different strokes for different folks and everything ain't for everybody. I hear hey, that, Jen. Amen. the best way to think about it. That is a real good, happy neutral. You just say... Sure. What works for you, if you're a a consenting adult, go for it. Knock yourself out. It's a process that begins with awareness and recognition. I'm a work in progress. Betty Rupel Mayer. Thank you for that. That's good. That's also wise. Those are sage words. I'm a Mm -hmm. work in progress. Give yourself some brevity. Isola Wright Moore Walker says, I remind myself of the beauty of diversity. I'm glad she's able to find beauty in diversity. Yeah. I love that. She gets it. And Brown Betty. Hey, mm-hmm. now Brown Betty, come on brown here. Betty. Betty said, we're all biased and sometimes that's okay. I'm allowed to help a single mom over a married one because I identify with single motherhood. I just ask myself why I feel like I feel. If the reason is me projecting some trauma, I turn my attention to the trauma. I like that. Literally just mirroring what I said, right? It's about you identifying what is going on with yourself. Why do I feel that way? You have to tap in. If you don't tap in, then you're only going to be concerned with what's on the outside. And you need to tap out. If you don't tap in, (laughs) tap out. Tap, tap in. (laughs) Alexa, play the sweetie song. go to this break. We're going to take a quick break, but when we get back, we'll be joined by two guests from our Red Table Talk community. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I've never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So... How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. 
Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery. But that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily. As I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she as my father believed, a witch. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I love that we have guests on our fantastic podcast, Cara. Dr. Susan Glisson is the president and founder of the Glisson Group a racial reconciliation and community building program based in Mississippi, a state notorious for racial violence. Here, Susan uses an approach she calls the welcome table to facilitate community-driven dialogue and informed action in the communities that welcome her. Her work fights for empathy, healing, and equity as the remedy to white supremacy. Thank you for joining us on Let's Red Table That, Dr. Susan. So happy to be here. Such an honor. Happy to be with all of you. Yes. I'm calling you my sister from a different mister. You know that, right? I love it. I love it. And it's an honor. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Ernest Krim III is a self-proclaimed Black history advocate joining us from Chicago. Yes. Great pizza. Chi-town. Right. He works as a high school history teacher and an online educator for all. Ernest is at the virtual red table to tell us about his book, Black History Saved My Life, which he wrote in 2020 after he and his wife experienced a hate crime that went viral. 
He shares this story to teach the important role Black history plays in culture today, and he continues to use his platform to teach true Black history on social media. I love that. We know you've guested on Gammy's podcast, Positively Gam, a little while back, and we're happy and glad and appreciate you for joining us as well on Let's Red Table That. Uh, The Red Table Talk family is amazing, so thank you for coming and joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. (laughs) Welcome, welcome. This is the part of the show where we reveal which moments made us pause. I mean, rewind, turn heads, and Bring say, let me back. listen to that again. Wait a minute. Wait, Wait what? Wait, what? <laughs> right. So, Susan and <laughs> Ernest, let's kick it off. Were there any moments that made you say, wait, what, during the episode? You know, for me, and I took notes. I took copious notes, actually. I'm an educator by trade. No surprise there, Mr. Academia. Don't put us to shame now, okay? (laughs) So I have to mirror what I expect from my students. And I highlighted a lot. And I think the main thing that stood out to me was when they started talking about what drives white males to engage in this type of racist violence. There's kind of this white male entitlement to what I've owed in this world. I expect to have a girlfriend and be wealthy and be respected or have resources. And so when I don't get those things, my anger and rage is very intense. There's always been something that I've wondered. And again, being from Chicago, we often hear the tropes about black men in the city with gang violence. So there's a stark difference between the gang violence we see that often doesn't make its way into the school building versus when white males engage in violence, it often does in public spaces. And say yes. it again. Yeah. Yeah. Say it again. That <laughs> oh. is a wait, 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 what? Right. Straight up. Right. Straight up. Right. And when they said that, I believe it was Dr. Jill, Dr. Jillian. She said that the self-hate that they have for themselves or the depression that they're dealing with flips to what's wrong with them as opposed to them doing some type of internal reflection. And it really made me think about going back to even what Jeff was talking about, how in a lot of these spaces, they take advantage of those who are most vulnerable. And I really connected with the part where he said they were recruiting in Detroit. They were recruited in places that were economically impoverished because that's the same thing gangs do in the black community. Right. (laughs) It is. It's a mirror mentality, is it not? Yeah. Yeah, that's totally a wait what. Let me say this because a couple times already I've made the Gammy face. So I want y'all to know (laughs) throughout the episode, let me acknowledge, Gammy, you know I love you, okay? Mm -hmm. I made Gammy's facial expressions throughout the entire episode. Gammy and I were mirrors on the facial expression. It was the side eye, the turned up lift. It was, if words could speak, the words would say, wrong. Uh -uh." The whole episode was a The whole episode was way what? Confused. Yeah. Yeah. Gammy and Willow were on the same page. Now, Carl, which one were you? Facial I, was I work to understand. I'm trying to understand others. Even the main guest who had 27 years of hate, right? But yeah. now he is just reformed. In my mind, I want to understand that. But at the same time, as you say did that, you I'm really let a... that go like that? See, look at you. You don't even want to forget a man at all. See what I'm saying? Not that I don't <laughs> forgive, okay? You can forgive and leave folks alone, okay? Mm-hmm. You can forgive and disassociate. Right now, I'm making a little bit of a stank face. What about you two, Dr. Susan, Ernest? How do you rank his deservedness of forgiveness? That's a tough one because I noted that he said he didn't feel like he had the right to ask for forgiveness. And Mm -hmm. I really appreciated that. 
because I'm not sure that he does. Apologies, to the extent that they are effective, are usually effective between the person who was the perpetrator and the person who was the victim. But he not only hurt individual people, his program of hate hurt a lot of us out in the world. How do you repair that? I appreciated his courage for coming to the table. We can't get going to try to change anything if we can't come to the table. But yeah, the wait, what? How does it, why does it take you that long? Why does it take you right. that long? Right. You're not, you're clearly not a dumb person, right? You can read, you can watch TV, you can hear what people have to say. Right. It shouldn't take you that long to recognize humanity in another person. Right. Right. My other question is like, when he was in his household and decided to change his life around, did your wife, children just forgive you? Family members? Did they just go along with your change? Is that, did that really happen like that? They just accepted your change? Because you preached this for a long time. Yeah, I had the same sentiment because I dealt with the hate crime face to face, me and my wife. So I think when people talk about forgiveness in a situation, it's more so I don't owe you like me mm. telling you I forgive you, even if I did. And I think oftentimes we make it a public spectacle. Forgiveness for me is that's something that you have to deal with yourself because you hurt yourself. It's spewing out hatred means that you hate something about yourself to be able to consciously do that as an adult, too. So for me, if you really want to be forgiven, and I'm not him, I can't say for sure, he seems to be doing great work. And the fact that he made an organization and he's working, that's great. And he has to continue to do that. And it has to also translate to economic resources. It has to translate to policy. Because just like you mm -hmm. all said, when I saw 27 years, I'm like, bro, like I've been actively engaging in learning black history since I was in college. And right. I still have a long way to go. And I exactly. still have to make sure I am not digesting these racial tropes and stereotypes that we're mm -hmm. all fed. So he has a long way to go. And I hope that he's aware of that. But I do commend him for taking that step. But it would have been very difficult for me to sit there and not be a little confrontational about some of yeah. the things he did. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that he deserved a seat at the table? With all due respect, I think based on the conversation, yes. I think that since it was facilitated by Black women who we know the history in this country, and for them to extend that honor, he should have been honored. And I, I think he deserved it. And to me, he came across humble. But again, just knowing what he did and just the experience I've had, it would have been very difficult. But I think it's important to hear that perspective because we have to understand that whether we ignore these people or not, they're here. I just don't believe I'm the person to facilitate that. So I commend people like Dia, uh, Daryl Davis. But and I will also say this about him. I believe that when you have people who are that extreme and I, I could be wrong, but I'm just going based on how I feel right now. I think that it's easier to have them switch their mindset than someone who unconsciously spews racism and lives in this implicit mm. bias world, if you understand what I'm saying. That is all right. Now, Ernest, that's a wait what? We could have a whole conversation yep. <laughs> about that. And I'm here for it. I want to hear all about that. I really do, because I love a good verbal volley. Mm -hmm. I got to get Dr. Susan in on here because I want to hear from your perspective. It's a wonderful dynamic that we have to have a gift of having a black man and a white woman on as our guest today to talk about this, right? Because you're both soldiers on the same field. Tracy, I appreciate that so much. And I think Ernest has said it so much better than I, but when I encounter situations like this, where there's an opportunity to engage with someone who has harmed others, my first question is, who are the folks that he's harmed and what are their thoughts about this? Mm. That needs to guide what we do right? Working in Philadelphia, Mississippi, Neshoba County, the Mississippi burning case, I needed to know what the Black community in Neshoba County thought 
about any yeah. work there. And if their suggestion to me was we're not ready or they're not ready, we need to take time, then time we take. Hmm. So the fact that Dia connected with him and in some ways kind of vouched for him mm. was moving for me. I wanted to know what her thoughts were about having him at the table mm. and reaching across to him. You bring up a really interesting point. And I don't know that it was really addressed in the episode. If it was, mm -hmm. feel free to correct me. None of the victims directly were ever given a voice. We didn't hear that in the episode. And it's interesting that you bring up the point that if the victim isn't ready, then it's not time. And in Dia's case, even though she was vicariously, because so many of us didn't directly feel it, but as a result of his efforts and his organizing and his almost three decades worth of hate, it's a rippled and snowballed, right? So we are victims directly and indirectly, but we didn't have that true representation of someone who said that, like you, Ernest, I directly felt the impact and the ill effects and the negativity and the direct hate from him. And so it's just interesting to me. It's, it's why it's so important that Ernest is here to share his story. But also to Ernest's point earlier, there is plenty of work for folks to do until the person who has been harmed might be ready. They may never be ready. And that doesn't mean that you get to sit around and not do anything, right? You have to do the inner work. You have to excavate. You have to do some archaeology on your attitudes. And then, you know what? You got to make some amends. You got to try to do some things. The policies, the practices, the procedures, you got to reach back to some other white folks and bring them along with you, too. You don't get to just sit and wait while someone is having to do the hard work of repairing themselves when they've been harmed. Yeah, that's good. Because so oftentimes, the burden is kind of unspokenly put on the oppressed. Right. Thank you. That's Tell me it. what I did to you. You know what you did. Make me Stop. feel better about what I did. You know exactly what you've done. And mm -hmm. if you don't, I need you to stop and think about it. Yeah. I said this when we were preparing for this show. Like, when they ended segregation, who went in and told all the employers how to actually treat the employees? Nobody. Like, y'all made it up. <laughs> and, and more so acted like nothing really happened. So that cognitive dissonance is a problem for me. Living in the capital of the Confederacy, a lot of things are just, you don't speak on them. You just don't go on that street. You just don't turn that way. There's so much social conditioning mm -hmm. that has happened with the, we can't go on certain streets and we can't say certain things. And we were finally given a voice. It's just, I don't know whether I need to get up and cheer or take my headset off and weep that it was even said. How would you feel sitting at the table with Jeff? I, that's hard to say. I think the difficulty bigger than just sitting at the table with him is we're saying that he talked to one person of color and his entire outlook was forever changed. Is that the goal of the protesting and everything we want? Because then when someone changes, I hear us even in this conversation saying, oh, no, I doubt it a little bit. Understood, though, because you do 27 years of a thing. I mean, you write with your hand for 27 years and then you got to go to what your left hand the next day like is that just is it just automatically changed like that so you don't revert back at all you are just completely and I mean if that is the beauty of change then we would like to all have that same grace right you would be able to sit at the table with him or you wouldn't I feel like I'd be able to sit at the table with him and listen but I feel like there would be a little doubt there as, as far as are you even being genuine is this okay. a true change you're having I think I would question it mm-hmm 
Okay, so let me tell you, like you, Ernest, I had, wait, what, wait, what, wait, what? It was like a wait, what remix in this episode for me. One of the wait, what moments was Dia's story of a man who enjoyed seeing fear in the eyes of a person he Mm. beat because he had been fearful his entire life. Then he said, I saw something that I'd never seen before. And he said, I loved it. And I'm going, what was it? He said, fear. Oh. He said, you know, for me, somebody who was afraid my entire life, now somebody, now somebody else is afraid, afraid of, of me. me. Ernest, you go ahead because you touched on it and just go and elaborate for us. Yeah. So that revelation by Dia, I think that what we have to realize, and I think somebody touched on this on the episode as well, is that all of this is deeply rooted in fear. And hate is just another way that that comes out of us. When we go back through history, and we think about the system that's being created. The fear is that black people are going to take something from white people. The fear is that indigenous people were going to take something. The fear coming from maybe living in an environment where there were a lack of resources during the medieval period in Europe or during the plague. And you come over here and you see what you think is all of this opportunity. The fear might be that it's going to go away. And we don't often realize how that can be taught to people implicitly. And Carol, you brought up a great point because... Because you're saying like when segregation comes down and I've always had this thought, we've never we've never had a mass movement where we said, okay, we need to flip all the education. We need to make sure we're teaching this instead. It's 2022 and we're talking about teaching about black history and how we need to in some ways rephrase it as an involuntary working or whatever they were talking about in in, in, in Texas. What black people did you solicit? (laughs) Like, Oh my gosh. I just can't even. I can't even. Right. If that's a whole nother episode, Ernest, okay? And I hate to even, I I really personally, and this might be a way, what I don't necessarily like using white privilege because I don't think it's a privilege to be able to benefit from genocide and slavery. I think that there's white access as a result of these things, something that whites can benefit from, and again, benefits in, in quote, would be that when you deal with your hate, like oftentimes you're nurtured in it, like People might not want to be punitive with you. They might want to coddle you. Right. But if I have some hate because of the environment I grow up in and not realizing the hands that put my hood together with redlining, I have police Mm. everywhere watching everything I do. So we don't want fear and hate to be nurtured, but we never get that opportunity to figure out why we even have that feeling. And then a lot of white folks who have that feeling of hate don't understand why they have that. It's not natural to feel that way, but it's been nurtured in some way to maintain this hierarchy. And I believe that once we get to the core of that, and that also goes again to another wait what moment of the exposure to other people at a young age. It, it takes away that feeling, that anxiety that you have initially. Uh-huh. So it doesn't have to come later in your life. But I think there's a larger there's a larger point about the intentionality mm. of the socialization process. Right. There's a really great book that's called The Epistemology of Ignorance. And it is mm. about how white folks are specifically socialized to have that whiteness and the benefits of power that come with it be rendered invisible. So that you don't question it, so that you don't question it. And that black folks and people of color are socialized in the exact opposite way to know that in this society, this hierarchical society, you are in a particular position and you're supposed to stay there. You're not supposed to step outside of it. Right. I've always said that they've been conditioned to ignore that. It's not that you don't see it. There's that great phrase. I'll believe it when I see it. 
But the opposite yeah. is yes. actually true. I'll see it yeah. when I believe it. When I believe mm. it. Yes. yes. Which goes back, though, Cara, to what you were saying about there's certain streets you couldn't turn on. There's certain yeah. things you couldn't say. It literally is a it's a mind F, right? My first inklings of some type of race situation, right? Bless my heart. My grandma was driving and she would always blink her lights. We lived in the county outside of the city. But I'm like, why are you blinking your lights at them? And she was like, just to let them know that the cops are up there because nobody has time to be pulled over. Yeah, by, that still happens cop. now. It's translated into something different for no right, But it was just me trying to understand. In my mind, I'm like, wow, that's so nice. She is warning this person. Not It's nice now. Not thinking about the true implications of what that could be, but... The origins of it, you're saying, came from be careful because you need to be on your P's and Q's because you're right. potentially coming into contact with someone that is representing the law. Right. Sadly, that has circled back mm-hmm. around to be true, but mm-hmm. what it was now, it was literally it's you're speeding and I see you speeding. Dr. Susan, we talked about Dia's story of a man who enjoyed seeing fear in the eyes of another person that he beat mm-hmm. and that it was because he had seen fear in his entire life. I loved mm-hmm. Willow's response. I hate to say this. I really hate to say this. Some people feel powerless just like he did and don't do that. Yes, yeah. that's true. Yes. So her idea was, even if the person was fearful and he wanted to have someone else demonstrate the fear that he had, to Willow's point, that just because you had that experience and you were traumatized by it doesn't mean that you get a pass. Like, other people have Mm -hmm. had traumatic upbringings and they didn't turn to violence, so what's giving you the creative license and authority to do that? And not everyone has the freedom to respond. Dr. Susan, what's your take on... All of that. Ernest has nailed it and Willow nailed it. We are socialized differently. And one of the advantages that comes from this skin disease I have that's called whiteness is that Mm -hmm. I have the ability to expect not to have any reaction when I transgress. It's more likely Mm -hmm. that I am not going to be held accountable. Not that there aren't white folks in prison, right? There are. But for more often than not, disproportionately, Folks who look like me are able to transgress and get away with it. And how we have that expectation that we will. Right. Mm. There is an expectation. Absolutely. We've absolutely been socialized to believe. It's why for so many white folks, they didn't understand why black folks might be worried about police officers coming into their community en masse. Right. Because they've not experienced it. Just do what they're asking. We are. (laughs) okay. (laughs) we're doing it. So it's a socialization process that has to be that has to be excavated. And one of the main beautiful tools that does it is actually learning black history. What Ernest is doing is so powerful. There's work being done in the field of psychology. It's called the Marley hypothesis. And it absolutely says that when white folks learn accurate history, that's much Mm. harder for them to deny that racism exists. And it's like a duh, Mm. you would think that would be the case. But they're actually showing that if we teach accurate history, then there can be a change. And that's why so many folks are attacking critical race theory, because they know there's power in the truth. We are just learning every day, okay? And this episode puts some faces and stories to the heavy topics of racism and hate crimes 
that we hear about and sometimes just often don't see. Again, even as I unlearn some of the things that I've gone through just to not minimize others, I'm realizing it is happening to a lot of people everywhere. Just because 100% of my police interactions to date didn't end up with me getting hurt or, you know, who knows if I was profiled, but... I got to walk away. That doesn't mean that there are not other people who have truly gone through some significant situations and it calls for some attention. Ernest, let's jump into your situation. I really want to hear about this because you and your wife were at a community event a few years ago where a white woman harassed and spewed derogatory names at you, which you talk all about in your book, of course, so make sure y'all get that. But could you please share that story with us and why this was really the catalyst for you to take your work a step further past that classroom. Definitely. So I guess I should preface this by saying that I started teaching because I knew the important role Mm. Black history played in my life and our life. And just like Dr. Gleason said, I just knew that when I figured out where I came from and I understood how rough our ancestors had it, but they still persevered, it gave me a lot of pride Mm. in college. And it it helped me to understand why my neighborhood was the way it was. And it helped me to understand that it wasn't my own doing. So I had the capacity to fight through these things. And one of my favorite quotes from my mentor, Dr. Philippe Matthews, is nothing's wrong with you. Something happened to you. And Black history did that for me. So when I graduated and started teaching, this event happened in July 30th, 2016. So I had been teaching for about six years at that point. I say that because I want people to understand that I was already in this type of work. Right. I was teaching. I was doing mentoring. I would go to protest, but I was always in the back. And for me, it was just, I teach in a class, I mentor, but when I close that door, I mind my business. I got a private Facebook page, Instagram private. I don't do anything like that. But 2016 was a year. It was a summer. It was the rise of Trump. You also had Philando Castile. You also had Alton Sterling. I think we were a year removed from Sandra Bland. Philando Castile and his fiance Diamond Reynolds pulled over by Minnesota police for a broken taillight. Reynolds streamed what happened next live on Facebook. The death of Elton Sterling shot while being pinned down on the ground. The family says Sandra Bland would not have committed suicide because she had too much to live for and placed the blame for what happened to her on what they call, quote, an overzealous trooper who overstepped his authority. So I had all of that on my mind. When me and my wife went to this event, it was a way for us to decompress because it had been a wild summer. We had just gone to Jamaica and Jamaicans were asking us, like, what's going on in America? Are y'all safe? That's what we get. Are we safe? Are we that safe? was the question you that were getting. Are we safe? That's the hardest part about leaving the country, I yes. promise you. Yes. Someone's going to ask. <laughs> they are wondering what's going on on that side of town. So we went to this event and it was a majority black event. South side of Chicago, South Shore Cultural Center. Mm-hmm. I'm there with my wife. It's about 95% black. Towards the end of the event, we decided to go play a game called Cornhole because we noticed that there was an open station to play this game. We walk over there. There's one beanbag though for that station. So that's a problem. We look to our left and we noticed there's a group of four people, two black and two white. They had about 15 bean bags, we thought, just rough estimate. Okay, maybe they'll offer us some bags. The music's loud. I don't really want to go up to them. They're playing, but maybe they'll see us looking. Somebody throws a bag really far. Nobody goes to grab it. So we're just kind of waiting. You know, me and my wife are like, well, maybe we can at least have two. She grabs the bag and immediately a white lady in that group like power walked towards us like we just stole her purse or something and started screaming like you could have waited for us to finish. We weren't done mm. yet. 
And I'm thinking, like, y'all got some. Somebody see this? You have <laughs> you 20 got, bags, you got all ma'am. The bags over there. And so, because she came at us so aggressively, I just was like, no, you're not getting it back. Now, if it was respectful, it could have been right, different. See? It's just not, it's not in me. She kept yelling. She called my wife a hoe. And that's when it kind of escalated <gasps> from that point. What you call me? Say it again. So her two black friends almost start to come towards us to protect her. And then she begins to say, we're acting like a bunch of N-words. What happened to me? And that's when something just went off in my mind. And I was like, I can't believe this really just happened. Right. Oh, I'm finna right. snap. That's probably what <laughs> right. you're going through. Like, exactly. I don't like jail because it's exactly. <laughs> so many things go through our mind because, like we just talked about, you don't have the ability to react right. like you want. But, but you had the wherewithal, though, mm-hmm. to know I need to record this. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. the benefit of me, and I say benefit loosely, but being able to deal with that as a professional who was educated in black history, had a wife, had a family, I wasn't the same person I was 10, 20 years, 15 right. years ago where I would have just right. went straight to fighting. So in my mind, I'm thinking, I don't even like using that word anymore at that point in my life. So when right. you say this, I know it's not a reflection of me, it's a reflection of you. I'm still shocked. It still hurts. You can hear it in my voice, but sure. consciously, it's like I need to at least document this because mm-hmm. it's social justice. At this point, it's not a crime. You can say that word. Right. Unfortunately, it escalates as I take it out. I tell she her, she hit your phone yeah, out of yeah. your hand. When I first, was, yeah, because first I took out my phone and I said, "Okay, say it again," so I can get all of right. this on camera. Because now I'm recording. <laughs> right, right. I said, right. "Don't stop now. <laughs> Go off, sis. I'm ready right, right. with you." Because I'm, right. I'm thinking world star. I'm thinking Facebook viral. Right. And she slaps it. I pick it up. And she's so frustrated at that point. She just goes off. It's like, nah, 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 nah. and then yes. just going like a Ugh. machine gun. And she mm. takes a step mm-hmm. in the opposite direction, then turns toward us while her friends are right there in the middle and spits that. on mm. me, my wife, primarily my wife. And that's when the phone dropped. And the rest is history, as we say. Here's what I want to know. Okay. Mm. The friends. Because she was playing cornball, cornhole, <laughs> yeah. cornball. She was busy. Right. She was playing. Right. But what I want to make sure I got this clear is she was playing and she had black friends right. that were right. playing with her. Right. Right? Yes, she did. Yes, she did. And that's always the thing that people don't understand. Not just that, but they were actively protecting her. I don't think they realized what they were doing because, again— okay. I saw right. that, yes. Ernest. I saw that in the video, and I was like, now, wait a minute. You can say you don't see color, okay? That's all fine and good. And I grew up in an environment that was fully diverse. I'm grateful for that. However, come Come on now. You cannot stand, and it's not even a matter of race. At that point, it's right and wrong. And That's their right. friend was wrong. It's two left feet. I saw them literally square up beside her, like we're pillars mm. for her in the video. Mm. At that point, How did you feel? I felt betrayed. And I say this because my knowledge of history, my experience, I was not shocked. Okay, backtrack. I was shocked that it happened in that manner, but I cannot Mm -hmm. be shocked if a white person is racist when this society wants them to be. (laughs) But I was shocked that the two black friends did nothing. And in fact, a lot of my aggression and frustration went towards the guy that was there because I wasn't going to, unless I felt like my safety was at risk, I wasn't going to right. strike her. I was thinking I was going to be fighting him. And right. he never once looked at me as a man eye to eye. And that did something to me. 
And I, and I think that hurt more than anything. And, and, and her white friend, I think this is like a parallel to like just what happens with race issues in our country. The white friend was in the back the whole time. She was just like, well, that sucks. And the two <laughs> black friends immediately came up like, oh, wait, no, it's not that big of a deal. This doesn't <sighs> bother us. And, and, I, and, I, and I had a, I just had a revelation as you were asking me this question that I never had before. I'm, I've been speaking about this for five and a half years. The proximity to blackness that she had. We also have to understand that although segregation was enforced after slavery, so-called ends, black mm-hmm. folks and white folks have always been close in proximity throughout our history. Mm-hmm. And some of the we closest have. people to white people in this country were those who were enslaved. That's mm-hmm. right. So, That's absolutely yes. right. Yes, Uncle Nearest, the whiskey. Like, you know, when I hear about secrets wait, and wait people a minute. helping. Why did, I go, why did I go straight to oh, liquor? Wait. Right. <laughs> right. I like Uncle Nearest. Shout out to I Kitty love Burst. Uncle Nearest. Hello, they're in Tennessee. Hello. I love but Uncle Nearest. But in my mind, when I first started drinking it recently, shout out to Kitty Burns of Virginia Union University. Oh, in my mind, I was like... I need to, I'm waiting on this segue. I'm waiting on the parallelism. Come on, let me hear it. In my mind, I was just like, this man stole this and grew a whole generation of Jack Daniel. I just couldn't, but I love Jack Daniel. You understand what I'm saying? So like, again, how things are just stolen from us, even the security and safety from person to person, how it goes to others. Okay. So now that's a whole nother episode as well. It is, indeed. That happens repeatedly in history. Has happened. How many, it currently happens. Name a restaurant that you know of that is in your town Okay, so since Kyra's talking about food and liquor, we're going to give her deep dish pizza in Chicago, <laughs> right? We're going to give her pond raised catfish in Mississippi. Yes, Hello, yes. we're going to mm-hmm. give her some fantastic ribs in Memphis. Mm-hmm. And know that every one of those food categories literally has some black folk who had the recipes and Fancy. or managed, <laughs> hello, mm-hmm. managed the kitchen mm-hmm. and the recipes were literally lifted from them, taken from them, or gifted to them, as some of the stories go. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. national brands have been created as a result of them. Or just how anything's been flipped to their benefit and or entertainment. Like my grandmother used to tell me about how after she picked tobacco, she said that they used the watermelon rinds to get the tobacco off their hands. So instead, they were mocked for constantly having watermelon and, and the white folks not understanding why. They're just thinking, look at them <laughs> eating all that watermelon. You won't let us wash our hands. I don't know if you're paying attention. You know what I mean? So small stories like that, I think about how we were mocked when we actually were out here surviving and just trying to live our best lives. Even with all these stories and how things continue to come to light and how you continue to grow and earnest, you have grown a brand and shared awareness through all everything you've gone through. Do you think your harasser could change? Do you think that woman had the ability to, or would you even want to sit down and talk to her about how she's been since the event? If she had an energy to change, could she change? Yeah, I think that she does. I think that she actually does have the capacity to change. I think most people do. There are some who are so far completely gone. When you go to the extreme levels of shooting, I don't have any sympathy for that. But in this situation, I do. I think it would happen on her own time. I don't think any of the pressure from going viral or anything I've said publicly would convince her. I think it it, it could happen later in life. Who's to say it hasn't happened already? Who knows? She doesn't want to keep a public profile. What Dr. Susan said, excavation. She has to excavate some of that stuff. She's got to unearth it in herself and unlearn it. Do you think that any of the 
criminal repercussions that she suffered may have made her take a step back and say, wait a minute. And I know that I'm asking you to speak on her behalf, but I'm just from your perspective. Do you think that may have had anything to do with what could have been potential atonement, if ever there would be? I think in her situation that it could potentially speed up the atonement only because I know when I posted it, there were people posting pictures of her saying some of this same type of language to people <gasps> when she was in high school. So she she had a history of it and she was never punished. So I was going to say, no repercussions. Like, why stop? Exactly. So for <laughs> me, Dr. Kendi, I believe, said this. It's about who shows up. No, I'm sorry, it was Dia. Who shows up when your most vulnerable and broken matters? Mm-hmm. So I'm mm-hmm. hoping maybe somebody showed up for her in that situation and showed her the air mm-hmm. in her ways. But, and again, for some folks... The punishment makes them go harder in that direction. It really depends on the person. I I can't really say like you said, but I will say again that Mm -hmm. I think that it's a possibility, but I would not actually want to sit down with her just because I feel like for me, a moment sitting down with her is a moment I could have been sitting down with one of our kids who was harmed Mm -hmm. by somebody like her. And it's a waste of energy. Okay, so that's interesting to me because Dia had the grace that she extended to Mm -hmm. Jeff. And that is literally what shifted the course and trajectory of his life. So you would not be in a position to offer or extend your harasser that same grace? Never say never, but July 2022, (laughs) I just, there's so much that I want to do and have to do in this life Mm -hmm. with this issue. And I only get one of these. I just don't see the point. I, again, like we mm-hmm. after this, I started my colleague and I shout out to Rodney Coney. We started the Black Student Union at our school after I dealt with this situation and to hear okay. what our kids dealt with. And they never had an advocate. They didn't mm. get a chance to record it. It happened to them at work in the drive through and nobody cared or they deal right. with it in class. So for me, it's like, unless you talk about you got a uh, a fortune that you're going to give up and I can help you redistribute that. I can help you I find can, I some- I have some conversations for that. <laughs> you know, What's talk. the benefit? If, What's if, the yeah, benefit? If, if we're just talking to talk, no, it's a waste of time. But if, you, if we're talking because you have some access that you want to have right. your own personal reparations fund, then yeah, let's do it. I feel like with Dia too, she was intentional about healing pieces of herself, understanding pieces of what she felt, trying to get that out. So I feel like when she came to him, it was a little bit more directed. And honestly, whether he chose to change or not, she was doing a work. She was in her movement of work. She's a journalist. Most journalists are are uber passionate about what they're they're talking, you know, what they're pursuing because they want to unearth the truth. She wanted to share with him how she felt. This is how I was truly impacted. Whereas even in this conversation, we're talking about all the things that we, not going to say hid, but knew we couldn't speak about, maybe not talk directly about it. And I feel Car, like we're- I got to tell you, I, we, gotta, we need to just go ahead and talk about that. Let's just talk about that for a quick second. Talk about I, what? You've said it a couple of times that I want to be able to understand more. I want to learn more about what you're saying, about the things that we couldn't say in the places mm-hmm. that we couldn't go. Will you share with us an example of your experience in that? I worked for the government for 20 years, and I have constantly been underneath white woman after white woman who has minimized what I've said, minimized what I've done, 
at the same time, until it was time to take on the workload for them, now all of a sudden I'm overly accomplished and successful and amazing. And, you know, so after being in that professional space and then growing up through school, different sports, I did gymnastic. I was the bigger girl on the team. So never quite fitting into their cookie cutter mold, not having another black girl to turn and talk to. Like, are you seeing this? You know what I mean? So just having someone substantiate my feelings, acknowledging they were valid. And not that I didn't feel myself worth, but as you're growing up at preteen, even young adult in this professional setting, we're looking for someone to affirm what's going on. Anybody see this? So I found that comfort in my other girlfriends and other corporate positions. Let me tell you what happened. And this is why I started taking notes. This is that's probably why my note taking is successful. It's significant. It's intense. You know what so I mean? So you found because as you were growing up, it was a learned behavior. Were you ever told like, don't go down this, don't go down this street because it isn't safe or... It's not my side of town. It's not my place to be. Or just you go through one experience and you never go that way again, whether it's being pulled by the police or I got in a fight down that street. So some things I think are just not spoken. Am I the only one who ever experienced that? I mean, have you always been this outspoken? This is a learned behavior for me. Are you asking me? Yeah. And not even Uh, that I'm outspoken. I've always been me. But to come fully into who Cara Presley is, I feel myself ever evolving, especially when I became the career cheerleader. That was because I had nobody cheering me on and I had to reaffirm who I was and what I was doing. Yeah, I get that. But yeah, so to answer your question for me, I have always been this outspoken. People like my family will say, yeah, that's Tracy. And people in elementary school would even tell you that. And I literally grew up from K through college, mm-hmm. all white. I went to a predominantly white school. Mm-hmm. All my whole community was like 85% white. And then we were the other, and it was like 2% was black, where we were happy to see the other black students. It was like, hey, it was just this unspoken thing where when you thought you're the same skin made you can, and that's not true now. And so... Won't you then? Right. And so for me, I have always been outspoken, but part of that was because I was empowered and affirmed and knew that I had a solid, firm undergirding with my mother and Mm -hmm. that she was going to back up whatever I said. And that she knew I was going to say something that came from a place of logic, right? I wasn't going to challenge some authority in a disrespectful, inappropriate way, but I was going to be able to stand my own. I have had to confront racism, but in the North, my experience, it was very much more covert than it is here in the South. Dr. Susan, you have been fighting this good fight in the South consistently. And I want to know from you, Jeff said that part of what led him down his path of hate was his fascination with his grandfather who fought in Hitler's army. I'm trying to figure out what led you down that path in the first place. So for me, my grandfather fought in Hitler's army in World War II. Now, my family was not for this stuff. They were actually against it and tried desperately for years to get me out. But it was that fascination with his history. My grandfather and my great uncles fought. That was the opening to the rabbit hole. And you discovered, Susan, that your family has a similar background being on the wrong side of history. Your great, great, give or take a great grandfather was a slave owner and an ancestor fought. For the Confederacy, not uncommon here in Mississippi and Tennessee and Arkansas. Or Georgia. Right. 
or Georgia, right? right name Just a state, America. pick a state, any state. But right. your reaction to learning that history has been completely different from Jeff's. Because I was prepared. So before I learned those histories, I learned to question what I was seeing, right? Let's mm-hmm. talk about my mama, right? A great author was once asked, how did you get to be from where you were to where you came to where you are now? And he said, I walked up my mama's backbone, right? I wish I wrote that mm. line. I walked up my mama's backbone. I like that. My father died when I was four. My older brothers were gone to the Marine Corps. And she, she had been treated badly by her father and he had told her you're to be seen and not heard. And that didn't hit her right, right? So she always said that my children are going to be able to say whatever they want to say regardless of whether I like it or not. And believe me, we tested that theory. And so when I was 10 years old in 1977, there was one TV in the house and it was in my mama's bedroom and Roots came on. And so my mother made me sit down and watch Roots with her. Just working class white woman in Evans, Georgia, outside of Augusta, whose father, my grandfather, was named for the president of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis. Mm. My mother sat me down and we watched Roots and I was horrified at how the black folks on the screen were being treated. And more than that, I was deeply embarrassed that the people who were doing it to them look like me. Mm. So I was primed. At least you were embarrassed. Right? It's horrible. You you feel ashamed. I was primed as I grew older to then learn that I had folks who fought in the Confederacy. That's what I learned first. Right? But I told myself this little comfort. I said, they joined the Confederacy. It was a horrible decision, but they didn't own slaves, right? Like, I can still be, like, kind of okay that they didn't own human beings. I comforted Mm. myself with that lie. I didn't know yet it was a lie. I should have suspected. Mm -hmm. I'm a historian. But it wasn't until December, when I was out west doing research in the LDS library, that I found Robert McCaslin, who was... Four greats back on my father's side who had been born and raised in uh, Northern Ireland County that was predominantly Catholic, who would have been treated mm-hmm. badly by the British. So he would have known what it felt like to be discriminated against, but came right. to this country in the late 1700s. And what do you do to get ahead in this country? If you look like me, you go into that industry, right? You go right. into forced labor camps. And so he became an mm. overseer first and then he owned human beings. And so I found his will where he names the people that he owned. I found where he'd split the forced labor camp up between his children. And then Patrick, his clearly favorite child who got more folks passed along to him than the others. On the eve of the Civil War in 1860, he took what were three human beings and grew his ownership to 17 human beings, including a two-year-old child. And I sat in that library, oblivious to everybody else, and just wept. Because the facade that I had comforted myself with, I couldn't comfort myself with that anymore. My family was working class. The reason we were working class, I didn't realize, was because our wealth was in owning other human beings. And it's devastating. And all you can do is face it, acknowledge it, and then do what you can to repair. Be a part of the solution. To Ernest's point about would he ever sit down with that woman, it is not his job to do that, mm-hmm. right? That There's a beautiful right. social justice ecosystem that my friend Deepa Iyer created. There are different roles in the movement. And it's good to be clear mm-hmm. about what your role is. And Ernest is clear and he is awesome at what he does. And he needs to keep yes. doing that. Somebody like me who wants to try to get more white folks to come to the table, I'd be happy to sit down with her and see where she is mm. and, and invite her into a conversation. The first thing I do is just tell me your story. Right, talk to your people. Because I've always said like, 
White people got to help white people. It's I can't help. Right. I don't even know what you're going through. So I'm so glad that you said that because it's not a conversation of me telling them how I feel. It's when I leave and y'all are back by yourselves. Dr. Susan, the hurt that mm-hmm. you must have felt because you had tried to give yourself a pass and seeing Roots and feeling guilt and shame. I remember watching Roots. I remember being I angry. I remember going to school the next day after the first airing and the white students coming up to me apologizing. I just want to say the, for the folks who were afraid of critical race theory, who want to try to protect their children from that feeling, mm-hmm. you need to be celebrating that your children see abuse and enslavement on the TV screen and they feel bad about it because that tells you that your child has a moral compass. Celebrate that. Yes, and how we should not be like that. When I was growing up, I so despised Roots. Now, mind you, I was born in 82. I am 40 successful years old. I despised Roots because I was tired of the slave story. Again, here I am, strong, 10 years old, man, successful, living my life, completely integrated, walking in Applebee's, man, living my best life. Segregation where? White water fountain where? So I was so completely separated, (laughs) I didn't know how close it truly was. We had so much to recap in this Red Table Talk conversation that we need two episodes to discuss it all. So you'll have to wait until next week to hear the rest of our conversation. We got into it in part one of our conversation with Ernest and Susan. But next week, oh my, you cannot miss part two. Right. You'll hear about the shocking message Ernest received from a student in his class who proudly waved the Confederate flag. And then Susan shares for the first time about a successful two-year reconciliation project that she championed and we'll talk about the trauma of gun violence it's a lot but these episodes are so important and we're grateful Ernest and Susan could join us for these tough conversations that's right so come back next week to hear the rest a big thank you to our executive producers Jada Pinkett Smith Ellen Rakuten and Fallon Jethro and thank you to our producer Kyla Kaneru and our associate producer Yolanda Chow and finally thank you to our sound engineers Calvin Bayless and Devin Donahue it's like the police knew who he was before they got here from iHeart Podcasts the medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose Podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.